Amen. Amen. As you're seated, you can turn to James 4. That's where we'll be soon. But we want to continue to pray and intercede for others as we do each week. And so uh, join me in your minds and your hearts as we pray for some of these needs. We love you, Father, because you first loved us and you called us, you drew us to yourself and redeemed us. We thank you that we can call on your name and we can rest assured that you want to hear from us. Continue to give us your faith to worship you as individuals and families in one voice together in unity as your family. We lift up our needs as a church to you and remember our partners in many local churches in this region. Help us to truly live out our mission together, making disciples, growing together in Christ throughout all of life in our missional communities. We ask that you would be with the Burkettes, strengthen and comfort them through this difficult season. Protect Jessica and the baby. Help there to be much rest and much health for both of them. Help us to do our part to love and serve them. For them to feel your love through our tangible actions. Do gospel work um, in and through the small groups at other local churches like Cedar Crest and Covenant Presbyterian and North Hills and Washita Presbyterian, The Well, and other churches that are proclaiming the gospel. Father, bless the Sharp family as they make Jesus known at Alt's Chapel this morning, as they continue to raise support for their work. Continue just to pour out your grace and your generosity and your provision as they seek to make disciples in Kenya. Continue to bless the parents here at the crossing and across other churches to disciple their families and to love and reach our neighbors with the gospel as they demonstrate and proclaim your goodness. Give us an even deeper longing in our hearts and minds to become a sending church and to network and partner with other churches to send out church planting teams to people groups like the Wanchi and the Mandar and the Laz and the Zaza and the Aceh. Send more laborers to the Baima and the Bonin and the Tongren and the Tibetan Jone. Continue to strengthen the ones that are sent. Minister to them through our pack teams and their teammates and co-workers on the field. Bless the V family and baby Abel who will be coming soon into the world because of your faithfulness to love and bless them. So let that birth be a celebration of the miracle of life that you can get even more glory and that family can find even more joy in you. Thank you for sending them and thank you for letting us play a part in sending them. Thank you for your faithfulness to the T family as they minister to Turkish Muslims in Berlin. Let them rejoice and reflect on how good you've been in their history, working in and through them there. Provide more opportunities for them to share your gospel. Father, may you work in world leaders and governmental powers to humble them and bring about your peace. The nations rage in vain, O God. They scheme to no avail. Let your power and glory be acknowledged around the world. Let your justice ring out from the heavens throughout all the earth and all the courts of the earth. Let leaders serve in all the nations so they may know you and you alone reign over all. And now teach us through your word. Speak through your word. We want to hear. We want to be transformed. We want to receive what you have for us today. Our hearts are aching for the good news of the gospel. Our hearts are aching for encouragement and life and joy and hope and peace. So help us to see all of that goodness found in Jesus and how we 
can know him, how we can live in him and he can live in us. Do this for the glory of one name alone. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, today is the last sermon in James for several weeks. Next week, we'll jump into a vision series that we do each September where we're reminded who we are as a local church and what God has called and equipped us to do. And this whole series that we've been in in James, and we'll finish it before the end of the year, has centered around this idea of Jesus being on display. Jesus being on display in how we live our lives. Like James is known as one of the most practical books of the Bible. It could easily be turned into a simple list of do's and don'ts. Do these good things, don't do these bad things. And that will make you a good person. The problem with that religious way of thinking is what we do or don't do doesn't make us good or bad. We're born sinful in desperate need of a savior and Jesus alone is the good one. Like there's no one who's ever walked the face of the earth like Jesus. There's no one who is who he is and has done what he's done. He alone is fully human yet without sin. He alone is fully divine as demonstrated in the way that he healed and the way that he raised the dead and the way that he spoke with authority and the way that he had power over nature. And so we don't need another list of rights and wrongs to follow to make us good people. We actually need a new nature. We need a new heart. This is the, the bad news of the gospel before we get to the good news of the gospel because the good news of the gospel is all of that comes from Jesus. He provides all of that for us. He makes us alive in him. He comes to live inside of us. And now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can do good and avoid wrong. And when we do, then Jesus is seen through us. Jesus is seen in us as we live out the commands of James. And we have to constantly remind ourselves that or we'll just go through each section of James and turn it into more commands to follow more rules to follow that are trying to make us into these people that we will fail at because we do. And then what does that say about us? If our identity comes from our performance and our performance is never, ever enough because it's not. James tells us that faith that is alive is a faith that doesn't just hear the word, but a faith that does the word. So we're not saying don't obey the word, no, we do obey the word, but obedience doesn't make us into these people that are good. Obedience flows from who Jesus has already made us by faith through grace. And so we are then doers of the word. He said back in chapter one, we saw several weeks ago, it's not like a man who looks in a mirror and then immediately walks away and forgets what he looks like. That's kind of silly. Like who does that? Who looks in a mirror and then, you know, two seconds later, I don't, I don't remember what I look like. No, faith that is alive is faith that has lasting impact on us. We look into the perfect law of liberty, the word of God, and it stays with us. We see Jesus, we see ourselves in Jesus, we see this perfect law of liberty, it stays with us, it goes with us, it changes us, it flavors us. The word doesn't have temporary impact on us, it has lasting impact as it transforms us. And that's the difference between someone who is religious and someone who is a Christian. A religious person just has a bunch of do's and don'ts they try to follow, and that makes them who they are. And if they can't follow the, the, the list of do's and don'ts that they've created, then they just change the list because they want to be a good person. They want to be a right person. But a Christian 
is someone who's made someone by Jesus and what Jesus says about them, and then they go and do and live out that reality, the reality of their new identity. And so when we come to this new section of James, and it sounds like just another rule to follow, we don't follow rules just for the sake of following rules because by following the rules, we're making ourselves to be something. No, the commands that he gives us flow from the person and character of God who lives in us as his people. And so to obey these commands means it reveals our life is in line with who God has made us to be. And if we don't obey the commands, it violates who God is and who God has made us to be. So in other words, when we don't obey God's commands, a problem isn't, well, you broke a rule. Call the police, call the authorities, there's a problem. No, the problem is this is not who you are. This is not who God's created you to be. In a disobedience, you're living against this new nature that God has given you in Christ. That's the problem. It's the heart issue. It's not just that you're stepped out of line with a rule. These rules aren't arbitrary or just made up stuff that God's thrown against the wall to see what sticks. They're rules and commands that flow from who God is, flow from his character and nature and who he's making us to be. And so breaking the rule or disobeying the command isn't the issue as much as what is broken in us. What is broken in our understanding of who we are that would lead to that disobedience? Okay, let's see how all that comes together in today's passage. We're James 4, we'll start in verse 4 to get context, but we're really focusing on the verses 11 and 12. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God so that whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God? Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? We've looked at how the last several weeks James reserved some of his strongest words for this section, calling out God's people in, in the church as adulterous people. Spiritually speaking, they have run from their faithful husband, God, to align their hearts and minds with the world system that the enemy controls. How have they done that? In their arrogance, in their pride, in their conflict-driven spirits, and in their selfishness. Then last week we looked at, okay, then what do we do when we find our hearts out of line with who God is? Last week we saw that in humility we draw near to God, we turn away from sin, we find our Father is faithful as we humble ourselves, as we cling to Him, we run to Him, as we draw near to Him, as we get low, He comes near us, He lifts us up, He restores us, He welcomes us back, He cleans us up, He embraces us with open arms. But James is not done addressing the issues in the church that need to be addressed. And he comes back to the language of family 
that is used throughout the letter when he says brothers and sisters. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. We are family. We are family forever. Because of the work of our Father in heaven who sent his Son to be the Savior of the world so that through Jesus we are adopted into God's family forever, never to be cast out. We are his dearly loved sons and daughters of our Father in heaven forever. And that makes us brothers and sisters forever. And this bond that we share together in Jesus is stronger and deeper than any other bond that we have with any other person on this earth. Like, think about it. We get married to a person. We're not related to them by blood. In fact, we can't be. It's illegal. But that covenant of marriage only lasts until we die. We hope. Once we die, we'll never be married to that person again. So it might be romantic to say something like, I'll be married to you forever. And my theological brain always checks into this Oscar mode. Well, actually, it's not quite true. Now, we'll know each other in the eternal state. We'll be brothers and sisters in the eternal state, but we won't be married. And we didn't know this until Jesus revealed this in, in places like Matthew 22. This bond we share is stronger than blood relatives. Just because you're related to someone by blood doesn't mean they too believe in Jesus. In fact, sometimes the gospel of Jesus divides homes and families. This happens all over the world today, even in our culture. Our cultures who, who grew up in a religion other than Christianity. When someone in that family sees Jesus as the king and savior of their soul, they begin to follow him. It can cause great division in the family, which is why Jesus said in places like Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's not that Jesus wants us to hate our family, but if we have to choose between Jesus and anyone, if loving and being loyal to my family means I have to leave behind Jesus, Jesus says, nope, leave your family behind and follow me. That's the choice we have to make. And it may feel like we hate them because we love Jesus, but it's where our heart and devotion are with the hopes that they too will see the beauty of Jesus and come alive in him and become part of this forever family. Being related by blood doesn't guarantee they will believe. You don't make it into heaven because your parents or your grandparents are followers of Jesus. This faith has to be your faith. It can't be their faith. And, mom and dad, your faith doesn't guarantee your kids will believe in Jesus. It helps a lot, but there's no guarantee. You can baptize them as infants. You can catechize them. You can call them Christians. You can disciple them. You can teach them everything you know, and they may grow up and say, not for me. And so we see it throughout Scripture all the time, this language of family, brother and sister. And we say it all the time in the Crossing Church. We, we, we talk about being family. It's one of our three key identities, family, servant, missionary, because it's so essential to who we are. We are truly family forever. So like if you barely know somebody because you're new to the Crossing or you haven't really developed a relationship with them, you're going to be hanging out with them forever. Go ahead and get to know them. <laughs> Why not start? Or if you, if you know someone really well because you've been in life with them for a long time, you're also going to be hanging out with them forever, deep in that relationship. Grow and in, in deep in that bond that you have. And so I think that's part of why James says this. Brothers and sisters, don't criticize one another. 
See the bond you share, this love you share, this life you share. Why? Why? Because you have this deep bond. Why be critical? Why defame or judge each other? You have a bond built on love. It's in a violation of that love to treat a brother or sister with a critical spirit or to defame or to judge them. How can we do that to each other? This isn't just prohibiting spreading false information about people. So it's always wrong to tell lies. That's, we know that. But this also prohibits spreading truth for the wrong reasons, what we might call gossip. So gossip is taking true information to places it shouldn't go. Slander is spreading false stories. And neither should characterize how we speak about each other in the local church. And James makes this equivalence with judging. So criticizing, defaming, or judging shouldn't characterize how we speak of one another. Now, we get killed all the time as Christians for being judgy, right? It's a common criticism made about the church. We make clear statements about things that are right and wrong based on God's word, which is based on the character of God himself. This is clearly right. This is clearly wrong. This is an okay way to live. This is not an okay way to live. You don't have to wonder about things like drunkenness or sex outside of marriage or issues like racism or abortion or same-sex relationships or marriage or transgenderism, the roles and responsibilities of men and women in the home and the church and the culture. Like we could come out with tons of doctrinal statements about these things. And it would affirm not only what the Bible has taught or does teach, but it's affirmed what the church has believed for a long time, hundreds and hundreds of years. And some in our culture would say, who are you to judge how I want to live? Who are you to judge me for the decisions that I make? We shouldn't judge people and the choices they make and their lifestyle decisions. And so I hate you, Christians, because you're so judgy. You're always taking the moral high ground and pretending like you know everything. And if people don't believe like you believe, you just tell them you're going to hell. And it's kind of comical because we're condemned for making statements of morality by someone who's making a statement of morality. You're telling me it's wrong to tell you what is right and wrong, so you're telling me I'm wrong for saying what's right and wrong? Aren't you doing the same thing you're telling me not to do? So it's hypocritical in themselves. It's self-contradictory, which is why we have to go deeper. Okay, well, here's your belief system. system. Let's, let's look at what you believe and how it plays out in everything, uh, the everyday stuff of life. Let's look at what you believe and how it answers life's biggest questions, life after death, suffering, issues of right and wrong, culture, humanity, the image, all this stuff. And let's take what we believe and let's put it all on the table and let's examine it. Which one is logical? Which one holds up? Which one is rational? Which one is not self-contradictory? Which one makes sense to how God has created the world to function and work? And we would say we believe clearly that the man Jesus Christ is who he says he is and then everything flows from that. He lived, he died, he rose from the dead. Everything else flows from that. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if that's not true, this all falls apart like a house of cards. And we believe he's alive. And if he's alive, this is all true. And all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And let's compare that to any other belief system. So we could, we could dig in, into all that. Uh, examining why it's not really judging to say things are right and wrong because everyone does that. Every belief system does that. 
So James is not prohibiting us making statements of morality or even discerning what is right and wrong or who should or shouldn't be trusted in certain situations. There is a place for all of that. You don't just let anybody in your house. Some random person shows up at your house. You don't just say, well, come on in. I don't want to be judgy. Yeah, play with our kids. Take them to get ice cream. Show them your puppies in your car. Sure. I don't want to be judgy. We don't do that. We are to be wise and discerning. We can say as a church, this is good and right and helpful teaching. This book, this belief system that doesn't contradict Jesus and his gospel, this is helpful. But what James is warning us against is how we speak about each other. How we use truth. Is it done in love to build up or is it done from a position of superiority to beat down remember the previous verse focused on humility and in humility we're never going to criticize defame or judge our brother and sister because in humility we rightly see ourselves in light of God who alone is the judge and giver of the law and the law flows from his character and nature so he alone has the right to save and destroy not me and not us so who am I indeed to sit in the seat of judgment over my neighbor, over my brother, over my sister? If I'm full of myself, it's easy to do. I can tell you exactly how everyone else is wrong and how everyone else is doing wrong. Just ask me, right? If I'm full of myself, but in humility, I'm very cautious and I ask God to help me even if I need to confront a brother to even potentially biblically rebuke them, it's always done from a posture of humility and never from a position of being a judge or being superior, the position that God alone occupies. And it's true in all of our relationships, church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, husbands and spouses, parents and children, workplace, everything. We speak the truth in love, never to beat down, always to build up. Truth never becomes a sledgehammer. Truth should be life-giving. And in humility, I receive truth as well when it comes in love from brothers and sisters. The kind of slandering and judging James is advocating against is using truth to punish and not to redeem. I see something in your life that's off, and here I come with truth to make sure you know how wrong you are, which means you also know how right I am because I'm the judge. I'm the one that's determining you're wrong. Instead of, how can I share this truth with you with so much love? Because I love you and I long for you to walk in truth. It doesn't guarantee they'll receive it, but at least you've done your part, right? The criticizing and judging James is talking about is telling the truth to push someone away rather than trying to get them closer. It's telling the truth to punish them rather than to wake them up to redeem or reclaim them. Why are you telling them this truth? It's not just what you're saying. Is it true or not? But why and how are you sharing this truth? To slander, criticize, defame someone is to literally talk down to them, to make them feel small, to punish them because they don't see what you see. Tim Keller gives a few signs to see if this is something you struggle with. 
you have this kind of judging spirit if people that you speak truth to are crushed and not built up. Now we have to be careful because some people are so defensive or they uh, so self-righteous or they struggle so much with self-worth that it doesn't really matter what you say or how you say it, they're going to either feel beat down or they're going to get angry, right? No matter how. But over the years, over time, do the people you speak truth to feel deflated and crushed? Like if you wanted to take this to another level, I would say this, go to your spouse and go to your kids and ask them, when I speak truth to you, do you feel encouraged to believe or do you just feel ashamed and beat down because you don't think that I believe what you believe? I'm not walking in truth. And if they are reluctant to tell you, that, that might be a good sign that you struggle to speak the truth in love. Secondly, this could be you if you have a fault-finding way of seeing the world. Like I heard a counselor say one time, it was his personality that he just sees incompetence everywhere. They say things like, if everyone just drove like me, there would be no traffic problems. Now that might be true of some of us, but so as a spouse, sometimes we think we have to be the Holy Spirit and we have to point out everything our spouses do wrong because obviously I can do a better job than the Holy Spirit of fixing what's broken in my spouse. Or I see all the ways they fail and I need to fix them. And this other spouse can live crushed by truth because all they ever hear are true words about how they fail. Our parents who rightfully have a position of authority over kids who are young and foolish and need to learn right from wrong and how to best navigate life. But in carrying that out as a parent, are we doing it in love, kindness, grace, patience are we giving them room to breathe are we just constantly harping on everything speak truth yes but in love that builds and gives life and doesn't make everyone in your life feel like they're walking on eggshells to be harsh with truth is not only a violation of love but it's a violation of humility who are you to constantly decree everyone's faults and failures who are you to live in a position of superiority over others and constantly remind them how they fall short in your eyes? Thirdly, you could struggle with a judging spirit that James is talking about where you not only enjoy telling people their faults, but you enjoy hearing about other faults in others. Like, why do we enjoy hearing gossip? Mostly negative stuff. Someone made a mistake and they're struggling. Things aren't going well. Football season's upon us. You have a team you love and you have teams you hate. You hear things are going south at the program that you hate. You actually, in your heart, cheer. Their quarterback tore his ACL. Oh, man, that's too bad. Or we drafted fantasy football teams yesterday. Week one, three big star players get hurt, but they weren't on your team. Oh, I hate that. So sorry you've got to figure out you know, we, we cheer in our hearts at things that are terrible, horrible. Those are silly examples, but they give insight into how sick our hearts are because we do feel those things about people in real life. The church across town who doesn't do church the way you think church should be done is struggling and your heart rejoices. Serves them right. They do things wrong. 
The family you struggle to get along with is going through hard times and you secretly aren't sad for them. The family member who drives you nuts has something bad happen to them. The Facebook friends who are always posting crazy political stuff, they get their account hacked and you're like, yes. That's what they get. We love that kind of stuff because deep inside of us, we want to feel better about ourselves. And it, sometimes we want to do that by just pushing everyone else down. And that makes us feel more righteous and more justified, which is a sign that we have the spirit of judging and slander and criticism James is speaking of. Lastly, we struggle with a judging spirit if we go beyond the facts and we constantly impute motives to people. We're so amazing at judging. We can only, uh, cannot only tell you whether what they did was right or wrong, but we can tell you why they did it and how wrong it is. We're like superheroes who can see into the hearts of people. Better than that, we're like God himself who knows the thoughts and inclinations of our minds and hearts. And that's exactly the problem James is referring to. In this kind of judgmental, critical, slandering spirit, we are placing ourselves in the place of God. We are making ultimate determinations about people, how good and right and holy and just they are and their actions and motives. And the problem is we are nowhere close to being like God. We have no idea what people are thinking. We have no idea why people do what they do. I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody of this. I remember in the early years of pastoring, I would struggle with conflict with church members and this tension that existed. And I would work up all these fantasies in my mind, these ulterior motives that they had, these things that they were trying to work out, these schemes. I was wrong all the time. All the time I was wrong. I was never right any of that. And thankfully, God was gracious to me and to humble me and allow me not to, to act on some of those stupid ideas that were in my heart and my head and make things worse. But he did help me to see over time, like, Jerry, you're an idiot. Why are you thinking these things about these people? These people are broken just like you're broken. They're trying to do the best they can with what they know. And they're struggling like you're struggling. Why don't you just love and serve them and be patient and let me do my work in them? Our only right position is a total position of humility and never one as judge. Who are we indeed to judge our neighbor, our brother, our sister? Only God can do that. So let's leave that to him. And so what do we do when we see things in the life of the people that we know and we love that, that we need, need to be addressed? Because it happens, right? We see sins in the life of the people that we love and something needs to be said, we think, or it needs to change uh, because they're not walking in repentance and holiness or what have you. So don't we need to speak, speak up? Don't we need to correct it and fix it? Well, if a kid's about to run into traffic, sure. Okay, start screaming and yelling, save the kid. But most things are not that drastic or require that level of emergency action. Most of the things harmful that need fixing in the people that we love and in ourselves did not start overnight and they're not going to stop overnight. And so in humility, we go to God. We pray. Oh, that's nothing. What's that doing? Just praying. It's just, no. <laughs> it's something. First, God, help me to see my judging critical spirit that sees the flaws of my brother or sister quicker and easier than I see my own flaws. Why can't I see the speck in their eye so clearly and miss the log in my own eye? 
And after seeing yourselves accurately, then we, okay, God, do your work. God, you can do more in them in three seconds than I can accomplish in 300 lectures and harsh corrections. So help them to see what they need to see. You live inside of them. Or if they're not believers, Holy Spirit, help them to see they need Jesus. And help me to demonstrate the love of the gospel to them, the love of Christ to them. Shape their heart, change their heart, draw them back to you. Just praying for people you love to be changed by the gospel is not doing nothing. It's tapping into the greatest power in the universe and trusting that your Father in heaven loves them and wants life and joy and hope and love for them even more, way more than you do. So do this, Father. Like if we spent more of our energy interceding for people we love rather than worrying, being anxious, being angry or lecturing, do you believe more would get accomplished in the hearts and lives of people that we love? And then begin to see them as a brother, a sister, and neighbor. How can I love them well while God works in their mind and heart? And there are times we have to speak the truth in love. Yes. doesn't mean we're quiet. There are times to speak truth in love. But the work they really need to happen in them is God's work. And he does use us. But ultimately, it's his work so he gets the glory. There's one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and destroy, which means he can save. He can and does transform. And he is sufficient. He is sufficient to carry this out. He can change us. He can change his people. It's his work. And he is sufficient for this work. He, you and I can trust him. He can save. He is able. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Like we never have to play God and fix people through judging them, criticizing them, or trying to fix them. And even when we do share truth, it's done with such love and humility, we're building them up. We're never beating them down. Because ultimately we trust in the Lord who alone is the judge and who alone is able to save. He alone took care of sin on the cross. The love and the justice of God perfectly meet. To be a holy and righteous judge, God still had to judge our sins. He couldn't just say, oh, oh well, nobody's guilty. Let's just pretend like that wasn't a thing. Can't do that or he's not a good judge. He has to judge sin. But in love, he chose to pay that price himself. He, the only one who could rightly judge and condemn us, took our place in love as Jesus, his only son, absorbed God's wrath for our sins so that we, who deserve death of sinful humanity, were set free and forgiven and given life. And this is the gospel. This is what we proclaim and what we share and what we celebrate and what we give to others as their greatest remedy for their greatest need. And we never grow out of this gospel. You never... Well, that's what you just learn to get into Christianity and you just move on to more complicated things. No, no. This is where you stay and swim and drink and eat and breathe and enjoy because it is the center of everything that we are. It's the center of everything that we do. And it, by God's grace, it leads to so much more satisfaction and joy in Jesus and devotion to him and love for him and obedience one, day, one way that we do that is when we gather like this on the Lord's Day, we share in this really ancient meal that goes back 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years back when God's people were in slavery in Egypt. And Jesus came and gave this meal its full intended meaning. The bread, his broken and bruised body, and the fruit of the vine, his shed blood for our sins. And so every week we remember and celebrate who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And who Jesus is and what Jesus continues to do for us as he continues to save us and keep us. And who Jesus is and what he's going to do for us because he's coming back. And he's preparing a feast and a table for us with a meal that will last into eternity. A feast that you can't even imagine beyond your wildest dreams. And so every week when we eat this bread and we drink from this cup, we're celebrating the work of Jesus in us and the past in us today and the work he's yet to do in the future. And it's available to anybody here who's been baptized, who has publicly proclaimed faith in Jesus and I'm, I'm a, my allegiance is with Jesus. I'm his. He's mine. Jesus is my king. Jesus is my savior. That's what baptism is about. What I'm showing you in the water, being buried with him in Christ Jesus, raised to walk in the newness of life, that's happened to me. I'm, I'm in with Jesus. That's what baptism is. And if that's you, you can share in this meal with us this morning. And it's also for those who continue to believe in Jesus, who love Jesus more than they love sin. Everyone here still sins. Everyone in this room still sins. But by sharing in this meal, it's your proclamation, I hate sin. I don't want to sin. I want to love Jesus more than sin. And I believe Jesus has the power to set me free from the penalty of sin, to set me free from the power of sin, and one day he's going to set me free from the presence of sin. And sharing in this meal is me saying, yes, he's done it. I believe. I still believe. He is mine. And so take some time to reflect, repent, praise, and enjoy Jesus for what he's done for you, for us. Just enjoy again in these few moments that we have. And when you're ready, you don't have to have a certain number of tears you cry or a certain level of remorse that you feel, but when you're ready to say, yes, I believe in Jesus, I'm still his, then come and receive the bread and the cup. And then go back to your seat and we'll share in this meal together.
Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for what this bread and this fruit of the vine, this cup represent. That though we are so sinful, this sacrifice that you made was necessary. It was not a sacrifice that you begrudgingly gave, but willingly, lovingly gave because you wanted us, came for us to bring us back. So we confess there's always this mixture of somber joy, this somberness that we are sinners. But this joy that you are sufficient to save. And you love us. And so let us experience that as a family again. And let it lead to worship. Let it lead to deep, deep joy. No matter what garbage we bring in today, no matter what brokenness, what sorrow, what hurts, what sins that we're struggling with, no matter what it looks like in our life, that you are screaming and calling out to us, I am enough. I am enough for you. Trust me. Follow me. Believe in me. Enjoy me. Walk with me. Thank you. You have been screaming this for 2,000 years and will continue to the ends of the earth. And we get to do that throughout our city. And so let us enjoy this meal together again. To our King we feast in Jesus' name. Amen. Take and eat.